1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm lucky and honored to be in dialogue with Roy Schwartz. He is the author of the following book, Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero, published in Jefferson, North Carolina, by McFarland and Company, 2021. This book is, sur- is Superman Circumcised, won the Diagram Prize for 2021. Roy writes about pop culture for CNN.com, IGN, and The Forward, among other publications. He is a historian and a critic of pop culture. Roy, Thank you for your generosity, and thank you for this remarkable piece of scholarship. Thank you for having me. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Um, where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in Superman and inspired your interest in the research that went into this book?
0: Ah, We open with a three-in-one question. I like it. Uh, I was born and raised in Tel Aviv, Israel. I taught myself English from comic books and cartoons, which is why I am comfortable saying things like Mm -hmm. swell. Um, I've always liked comics. My entry was really the Superman, the movie. The one was Christopher Reeve. I had a VHS. I would pop it in every day, watch it relentlessly, fell in love with superheroes, Mm -hmm. from that with comic books and with the comic book medium. Uh, Superheroes are a genre or a cluster of genres, rather, and comic books are a medium, the way cinema or theater are a medium. So I fell in love with the whole thing. And uh, eventually, when I moved to the States, I came here for a bachelor's and then for a master's. Um, My academic interest was always in pop culture phenomena. My master's is an interdisciplinary master's from NYU in English and social thought, focusing on... um, 19th century British literature through 20 mid-century, mid mid-20th century American literature. So Charles Dickens and Jane Austen all the way through the pulp novellas of Dashiell Hammett and, and everything in between, including comic books. Um, my master's uh, thesis at NYU, which was also called, Is Superman Circumcised? But I was really just to kind of have fun and uh, uh, draw attention was really about the concept of heroism and the heroic figure in the Jewish tradition, beginning in the Bible, through the Talmud, and particularly the Ashkenazi um, uh, tree of evolution, uh, the European one, culminating in American comic books, which I saw as uh, sort of the the culmination of that evolutionary tree. And I compared that to the Christian continental traditions. And there there are similarities, and there are some marked differences. Surprising no one more than myself, that won second place in NYU's annual thesis competition, which uh, got me some press and led to a book contract. And so here we are.
1: Thank you. What did it mean to you, if you don't mind me asking, to read Superman as a young Israeli?
0: In most ways, it Meant to me the same that it meant to the young boys and girls of America for the past Mm -hmm. eight generations, which is he is an inspirational figure. Um, To me, when I would watch Christopher Reeve or later read the John Byrne comics or what have you, these were morals worth uh, adopting and living by this is how a man behaved Uh, for better or worse it's also how i grew up believing a man should look like which is why i spent too much of my 20s at the gym but that's that's a different that's a tangent uh it was really um edification not that different from what religion this is the purpose religion plays in the lives of so many people uh and it really is based in so many ways on judeo-christian values that it sort of comes full circle at least in my mind as in Israeli, the difference was that comic books back then, now it's different. Amer- um, Israel in many ways, for better and for worse, is more Americanized now than it was when I was growing up in the 80s. But, you know, uh, Israel is more pragmatic. It's a bit of a more of a harsher culture. Uh, there's not that much cultural room or accommodation of fancy. So the idea of reading comics and liking superheroes past the age of Eight, let's say, seemed a little bit silly uh, and very much made me stand out as an Americanized Israeli. Uh, but, you know, it's in one way or another, that played a role in me moving here.
1: In what ways was your interest in Superman typical or atypical of fellow Israelis your age in your generation growing up when you were within Israel?
0: So when I was a child, this is before the era of the Marvel movies. This is before Mm -hmm. um, this kind of uh, cultural ubiquity, if not dominance of the superhero genre, at least in cinema. Uh, People weren't walking around with superhero t-shirts. Kids didn't have 30 different action figures of superheroes and they knew the name of some D-list obscure cartoon character. It just wasn't the case. Um, Not in the United States, certainly not in Israel. So Superman had... Even though the, the awareness was smaller within that, Superman was a larger figure. So in that sense, you could say my interest in him was, was more typical. That said, the interest in Superman in an Israeli context was more ironic or more metatextual. Oh, this is a symbol of America. This is kind of an American character. Um, my interest in him was much more earnest and in that sense, atypical.
1: What are the primary themes in this book? What message does this book convey?
0: If I did my job right, and the book is a good enough book, then it has layers of themes, and it's about more than one thing. Because every good piece of art um, in any medium is about something, but it's deeper about something else, and it's most deeply about yet another thing. and again, this is not a work of fiction, so it, it really is a factual exploration and interpretation of what's there or what is conjecturally there, rather than the story or narrative that I would like to tell. And I try to be very responsible about differentiating my interpretations and what has evidence and what is fact, etc. Um, Superman, and we're going to get into this in a minute, is really the ultimate metaphor and he's a multi uh, he's a metaphor for any number of things uh and these these things are not mutually exclusive from each other they can all coexist in this beautiful rich character um but what it comes down to if we're really looking for some theme um and as banal as it sounds you know the, the simplest lessons are the ones that we fail to learn generation after generation and are worth repeating is that we are all the same and we all share uh, similar experience that the the parochial is the universal, and that this Jewish character created by Jews and developed by Jews as a avatar, as a wish fulfillment character of Jewish wishes and Jewish fears, really echoed with Americans everywhere.
1: What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
0: Buy copies, buy ten, give them to your friends. The more, the merrier. And no, the I, I channeled Stan Lee right there. Um. But the bottom line is, if you got nothing else but a newfound appreciation for Superman as a character, I have done my job. If you gained a an awareness of just how uh, pivotal the Jewish contribution was for yet one more American uh, field of entertainment. We know Jews created Hollywood. We know Jews created Broadway. We know Jews created stand-up comedy, American humor in general, arguably. Um, it's far less well-known that Jews created a comic book. The comic book medium is a Jewish invention. The superhero genre is a Jewish invention. The comic book industry for the first 50 years uh, of its existence was predominantly, almost exclusively early on, Jewish. And that historical context inevitably found its way into the thematic content. Um, So if you can get that insight... In an appreciation for superman specifically than the Enu. what does your book
1: teach us about intertextuality
0: old text is the product of intertext of that interaction nothing is created in a vacuum no knowledge is created ex nihilo no art um in looking in analyzing the comics particularly from a historical jewish perspective Uh, The book is really a history of Jewish American uh, immigration and Jewish American culture in the 20th century in America, as well as the history of comics. Those two overlap to a great extent. It is not a book uh, meant for Jews exclusively by any means, uh, any more than a book about the creation of jazz, which inevitably would have to include the Black American experience in the Harlem Renaissance in New Orleans in the early 20th century would have to be necessarily a book for Black people. That's, of course, ridiculous. Anybody with an interest in jazz uh, would appreciate it. And very much like that example, you don't have to read it to appreciate jazz, but it will enrich the experience. It will give you more context. That is really what my book is about. Uh, To do that, to really gain an understanding, requires inevitably and inherently an intertextual approach. So we look at the history of the comic book field, but also the history of America, as well as the history of American entertainment and the history of Jews in America and in Europe in the 20th century, and how these inform each other and interact with each other. Um, There is art theory, there is literary theory, there is exegesis, since so many of these themes date back to the Bible and the Talmud and Kabbalah and other writings. And we're gonna get into the weeds of things in a minute all of these have to be included and they all inform each other in this wonderful web of intertextuality. So as scary as the word might seem, um, I just view it as a wide angle lens that can accommodate all this knowledge and how it informs each other.
1: How does your book enable us to think about recent depictions of Wonder Woman by Israeli actress Gal Gadot in new and different ways? If Gal Gadot personally read your book, what do you imagine she would say and think after reading it?
0: First of all, bonus points for pronouncing her uh, last name properly. People pronounce it like it's French, Gadot. Like, we are not waiting for Gal Gadot. We, uh, her name is Gal Gadot. Um, I really do hope she reads it. Uh, I, I think she would get a kick out of it. I actually reached out to her agents, but this is when the, um, my book came out when the second Wonder Woman movie was being made. So she was busy and that was that. Um but hopefully she'll she'll get a kick out of that if and when. The Wonder Woman is one of two, together with Captain Marvel, Shazam, the original Captain Marvel, are the only two main big name characters from the 1930s, the golden age of comics, that are not Jewish creations. Every other name you can think of is. And yet, if we think of the origin of Wonder Woman in the movie and in the current canon, what's called in Congo Crawl's continuity. She is the illegitimate offspring of Zeus, as many, many demigods in Greek mythology are. But in the original comics, she was um, made out of the mud of the beach, out of the, the sand on the beach by the Amazon Queen Hippolyta, and the different Greek gods breathed life and gave her powers. Uh, that is essentially a golem, by any other definition, and I thought it was entertaining that nobody ever sort of picked up on that. Um, <clears throat> As a character, there aren't any particular Jewish themes in Wonder Woman beyond the fact that the superior genre itself owes to Judeo-Christian, uh, we'll call it mythology and themes and values. But Gal Gadot definitely did bring a lot of her Israeli culture to the character. There's particularly one scene in the first movie in 2017 when her and Steve Trevor are taking a small boat away from the Miscara Paradise Island, and they travel to London. And that whole scene is ad-libbed. And she totally kind of breaks character and is behaving like an Israeli, with this kind of ruggedness and extrovertness and confidence in a way that sort of um, puts Steve Trevor, uh, uh, Kiss Pine, puts him off his game a little bit. He's not sure how to deal with this kind of tough, uh, honest, direct woman. And that that's completely her being Israeli, and I thought that was very entertaining. So in a in a way, in this anti-mimetic way that informed the character in that instance.
1: What is your book's contribution to the study of asylum and immigration?
0: My book traces the historical context and the themes of Superman from the Jewish perspective, from his, even before his very first appearance, the process of putting the character together, sort of his formation, all the way to um, modern day. Not all of that has to do with immigration um, and asylum and refugee crises. However, and this is sort of self-evident, many of these themes that were so relevant in the inner war and World War II period are relevant again with everything that's been going on in the world in the past decade, in particular. Um, so, you know, for better or worse, there's nothing new under the sun. But Superman is, among other metaphors, the ultimate immigrant metaphor. We are talking about a refugee, a baby who was sent by his desperate parents, a kinder transport. They put him in this little vessel. Uh, they put whether it's a note or a hologram recording or what have you, but it's the same idea. And they send him adrift to an unknown fate. Um, and this ties together, it's of course the origin story of Moses from the Bible, but that's also the story of the kinder transport. Uh, because history he repeats itself. Uh, same thing for the same reason. And he ends up in America. He's taken in by this heartland, all-American couple who raise him on American values. And he grows to be this great champion of America. So amongst other things, he is a promise to Americans that they should take in immigrants and they should accept them. That They're not going to be clannish and ungrateful and fifth columnists, et cetera, et cetera. Things that were common in the 30s and 40s and are common again today, but rather the immigrants will be grateful. They just have to be shown so they can champion the American way, uh, and they will pay off with dividends. Superman is the ultimate all-American icon, who is a powerful reminder that being all-American
1: means being an immigrant. You write as follows on page 144. Eager to prove themselves in America, young, talented Jews were told that Clark, kent's need not apply so they created a new industry and filled it with idealized supermen that america embraced and through them assimilated into the mainstream superman the first also proved the most popular in large part because of his secret identity many superheroes had amazing powers and every man alter egos but not like Clark Kent. He was as much victim as Superman was the hero, derided, rejected, painfully mundane, and hopelessly lacking. In short, someone almost everyone can identify with, especially the young. The Man of Steel is the aspiration figure. The mild manner reporter is the identification figure. And for readers across the country to identify with a character representing his Jewish creators was no small feat. What do you mean here? Can you clarify? Well, that's quite the section. Um, hopefully,
0: it, it sort of stands on its own. But to expand on that, um, when I said that Clark Kent needed to apply, that was sort of the transition from the historical context into the thematic content that I was mentioning earlier. Mm-hmm. The In America, Jews found a land of opportunity. This was the place where, for the first time in 20 generations, Jews had equal rights under the law anywhere. That is an amazing difference. And yet, Jews still faced bigotry, exclusion, and even to an extent, persecution. Uh, Antisemitism was much more severe and much more rife than... um, sort of the common memory would like to accommodate and we can I can give examples of that and if you were a Jew in the 1930s and the 1940s in America and you were talented and you were creative and you're entrepreneurial um, you had a very hard time finding a job aside from the fact there was the great depression the respectable businesses ad agencies magazine publishers uh, et cetera, et cetera, would not accept Jews. They, or they were limited how many Jews they would accept. They were waspy strongholds. Jews need not apply. So, Jews with this intellectual, or artistic bent brought it to comics because they had nowhere else to bring it to. And so, we have the comic book industry that sort of uh, got spawned by the bottom rung of publishing back then, which was the pulps. The, the art came from the newspaper strips. But the uh, industry, the distribution, and the content came from the pulps, which were really consider- considered very seedy. So they would allow Jews in. And from this, the comic books got created. In terms of <clears throat> Clark Kent being this sort of um, – Clark Kent is, the, is not the first secret identity in literature. That would be the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, if you want to go back, you can go to Queen Esther in the Bible. But he is the first meaningful – secret identity he's the first where both aspects of the character carry some important meaning to who he is and the story and they interact with other characters in the story through both uh they're not just a mask and clark kent was based siegel and schuster jerry siegel and joe schuster were the two teenagers uh who created superman superman and they discussed this in all kinds of opportunities he was their wish fulfillment their aspiration character but clark Kent, they based primarily on themselves they both looked and behaved and felt like clark kent uh who was of course a burlesque of jewish stereotypes right bespectacled and awkward and he was the schlemiel and Shlemazel, um etc and they fit that stereotype as well especially at the time where when stereotyping was not something uh that was unacceptable clark kent is essentially the story of a jewish refugee coming over as a baby from the old country Anglicizing his Hebraic name, he was born in Krypton, Kal-El. El in uh, Hebrew means God. Anglicizes his name to Clark Kent. Uh, Michael Shaban a Pulitzer-winning author of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, said only a Jew would come up with a name like Clark Kent for himself. Uh, he anglicizes his name to Clark Kent, and he assimilates because he looks enough like the dominant population, unlike people of color. Uh, he looks enough. Right? Jews are, can be white-passing Ashkenazi Jews. He looks enough like a dominant population to assimilate with a relatively small change of mannerisms and outfits. Um, so he combs his hair over, he puts on a fedora and a boxy suit, and there you go, he's a wasp. But underneath, he has his colorful ethnic garb. These are the fabrics that his mother wrapped him in, which she sent him away from Krypton. That's what forms his outfit. That is his talit. And when he takes it out, when this is a job for Superman, and he opens his shirt and he declares himself... He's declaring the personal, but he's also declaring the racial, right? He's a man when race, he says, I am now not Clark and I'm Superman, but he's also saying, I'm not an earthman, a human, I'm a Kryptonian. So he is, especially again, in the context of the times in which he was created, the ultimate assimilation slash assertion fantasy.
1: Can you explain in more detail who Kal-El is? What does this name and term mean? What is its biblical significance?
0: In Hebrew, the word for God is El. Um, One of the names for God is El. And it is the theophoric suffix, uh, theophoric meaning bearing the name of God, theos as theology, suffix, suffix. right. Theophoric suffix meaning bearing the name of God, of the main prophets and angels in the Bible. Michael is, in Hebrew, Michael. Um, Daniel is Daniel, Israel is Israel, and then you have Kal-El. And some scholars have claimed that the full name Kal-El means voice or vessel of God or all that is God. I find these arguments sort of specious. I try to be very careful about what is conjectural and what is not. Um, And I think that adding too much into it kind of waters what is there down. The character's last name in Hebrew is God. God. Now, it probably started out as complete coincidence, and that's that's something I go into the book, and I don't want to bore you now with it. But for two Jews who grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, went to Hebrew school, went to synagogue for the high holidays, spoke Hebrew, at least on a superficial level, to name their character God in Hebrew, such a ubiquitous term in Judaism, and never realizing it, even if it came from their subconscious, it's highly unlikely. Their character is named god in hebrew and that is very very rich in signification
1: there's another quote i'd like to ask you about on page 150 you write as follows what superman also got from his creators and their assimilated brethren is the carefulness with which he interacts with the world as clark kent he has to maintain a high level of self-awareness be mindful of everything he says and does lest he let slip and be exposed It's a gingerliness familiar to immigrants living in foreign cultures, even if not the dramatic fear of being discovered, though for Jews, even the US, there was that too, then of being seen as different, of saying something that isn't idiomatic or doing something that isn't normative and placing themselves apart. Being Superman like any immigrant means speaking in a second language and behaving in a second culture. Can you elaborate on this for us?
0: Superman, of course, has to assimilate, but he is Superman. If he's not careful, <sighs> if he's not careful, the slightest pat on the back and he will break somebody's back. Right? He lives in a world of cardboard. Um, and he has an awareness of the world that human beings lack. We don't have his eyesight, we don't have his hearing, we don't have his smell, which is probably for the better. Um, so he always has to be very, very careful not to be found out. And particularly post-Holocaust in the 50s and early 60s, Lois Lane became, um, she she went from being this intrepid, independent, confident reporter to this shrilly um, uh, uh, hag, which really has to do a lot with the post-war generation, men coming back home, finding women, taking their jobs, and this kind of resurgence of misogyny that actually was much higher than preceding generation. Um, But it's also a post-Hawka's metaphor in that she's always out to expose him. She's always out to show the world who he is. And of course, his enemies will immediately uh, take advantage. And there are all kinds of stories where his identity is either almost found out or found out, but then he manages to sort of cover his tracks. And in that sense, that's where Kryptonite comes in. And that's where they introduce Kryptonite and not by coincidence that this is where it happens. And the very first story that introduces Kryptonite in the comics is a story where Lois Lane actually finally uncovers his secret identity, although he manages to sort of um, hide it again. Kryptonite is remnants, radioactive remnants from his home planet of Krypton, which are only dangerous to him. So they are literally pieces of the old country, the old world that have followed him into the new world. Now his Kryptonian heritage is the source of his strength, but those pieces that followed him are also the source of his weakness. That is very much the ambivalent, as I read it, of the Jewish immigrant and the first generation American two Jewish immigrants towards the old culture, towards their heritage as a source of pride and a source of strength and a source of identity, but also something that's pigeonholing, and enfeebling, and embarrassing. Uh, When Clark Enders are on kryptonite, he's almost found out that's part of the the threat of it, and it's only dangerous to him. It's essentially, uh, you know, kryptonite is essentially weaponized Jewish anxiety, in that sense. Um, So that too, you know, there's always a danger of reading too much into these things, but once you have one element and a second element and a third element and a fourth element and they all fit so perfectly together. It's hard to ignore this kind of consistency of allegory throughout.
1: What is your book's contribution to the study of folklore?
0: Hopefully this is, this is, I'm trying to be not give myself too much credit here. Uh, Folklore is a large field. One is that folklore does not have to be something that ended in the 17th or 18th or even 19th centuries. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, up to the Grimm's brothers and that's it. Folklore can be very much now. Uh, I'm not the first to point out that superheroes are modern American mythology and they will be studied as such, you know, 400 years from now. Um, And superheroes are folklore and are also the result of folklore. One very easy, quick example is that one of the acknowledged inspirations for the creation of Superman was the legend of the Golem of Prague, which is European Jewish folklore. Uh, the golems go back to the Talmud and Babylonian Talmud, which is not European Jewish folklore. It's Middle Eastern Jewish folklore, but the Golem of Prague, particularly, is um, uh, uh, the Ashkenazi tradition tree. The other thing is. In in folklore, there's something called morphology um, or formalism from from the Russian perspective, which is basically looking at these patterns that repeat themselves. Uh, There's Vladimir Propp. There's um, people in America today are familiar with um, uh, Campbell, Richard Campbell, Freud before him, that these patterns, Jung, speak to really primal concepts in our psyche, whether it's collective or not. And Superman is part of that tradition and Moses, and Jesus, and Superman, and uh, Luke Skywalker, for that matter. They all fit these repetitive patterns. Superman was developed by Jews, which is why I see him as a Jewish creation, but there is is this kind of pan-universal folkloric resonance, which I hope to make the convincing argument that American superhero comics are part of.
1: What are the key postulates and arguments of Umberto echoes nineteen seventy two essay "The Myth of Superman." How do they apply to this book? How do they apply to thinking about Superman in biblical and Judaic context?
0: Uh, so Umberto Eco, of course, uh, anything he writes is sort of impossible to explain in in a quick two minute answer. So he wrote what is one of the very first serious essays on superheroes. Uh, called the myth of superman he wrote in italian it was translated in the 70s 72 i believe and um again like anything else umberto eco writes it works on several levels at once and superficially he looks at the impossibility of superman and why you could never write superman realistically quote unquote, realistically." The fact is, if Superman showed up today or if we wrote Superman from a purely realistic perspective, we would very quickly, inevitably get caught up in the infinite consequences of his appearance. His effect on stock markets, on governments, um, on religious institutions, institutions moral questions of why do you stop a purse snatcher but not topple a dictator in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and if you do, who give you the rights, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera it would be endless, and there would be no answer to it, and the character would really be quickly mired in it. So in many ways, realism is Superman's true kryptonite. That's one level that this essay is working on. The other level that it's working on is that Echo distinguishes fiction from mythology in that mythology, and he includes religious mythology for the sake of this discussion, is something that has to have an end. If it's ongoing, it's still an active work of fiction, of literature. So the story of Moses, which is an example he gives, is mythology because it has an end. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, and there's you can build on that, it has been built on and draw from and expanded, but it has an end. Since Superman never ends, um, he sort of straddles the line uniquely from any other character in that he is ongoing fiction in perpetuity, but because the first act, it's a, it's a never-ending second act, we never get to the third act, and we keep revisiting the first act. So in that sense, he's also mythology. And he goes into details of these imaginary stories where there's what if this happened to Superman, what if that would have happened to Superman, as some sort of a compromise between those two opposing forces. More deeply, though, Echo looks, or... or Posits Superman as the prime thesis, thesis in the Hegelian dialectical sense of superheroes. And he's right. Superman is the first superhero. There, you could argue chicken and egg and sort of what preceded him if it counts as a superhero, but proper, a superpowered crusader in a colorful outfit who blah blah blah. Superman is the first superhero. Nothing like him preceded him. And everything thereafter followed him. Uh, He is the Alpha and the Omega. He created and in a single bound exhausted all the tropes, all the neuroses, all the principles of the superhero genre. So he's the prime thesis, and every other character since him is the antithesis in some way. I would add to Echo's argument that Batman, who was the second superhero, Superman showed up in June 1938, Batman in May 1939. He was sort of the yin to Superman's yang and the every superhero sense sort of straddles so is somewhere on the spectrum between those two but uh every superhero doesn't matter what type he is even if he's nominally a superhero they might be talking about the punisher uh they all owe in one way or another to superman they're all a revisit of the trope they're all an argument against the trope um and that is really the the um, at the core of what echo is arguing that said, my argument is that as original as Superman was, he really was a blended reintroduction of older pre-existing tropes in literature and mythology, uh, going back to Gilgamesh, if you wish, but particularly the resonance of Moses, Samson, the Golem, and other such figures in Jewish tradition.
1: In what ways is the Superman saga a Midrash? How can the literary theory of rush in Judaism and Jewish studies help us understand Superman both as a comic book and as a piece of literature?
0: (laughs) It's a good one. So Superman is a Midrash Agadah, which is the stories, right? Midrash is divided, can be divided into two. Uh, One is sort of, um, uh, both are sermonizing or edifying, but one is more of an interpretation of what's there. And one is a folkloric legend telling to fill in the gaps or explain things that are there. Um, and that latter, the Midrash Agada is, is what Superman really is. It's legend. Uh, as we talked about a minute ago, it's it's folklore. If you think of a comic book, uh, the you know most pages have anywhere between, a page can have one panel, but usually they have anywhere between five to 12 panels, somewhere in that range. And an average comic book story these days has about 20, 22 pages. It's not that much if you compare that to the frames of a movie, we're talking about mere seconds. But obviously content in comic books is richer than these few seconds. And the reason is that the panels, the actual explicit text is really a snippet. It's a frozen millisecond of time. And the main content, the action, whether whether it's the meaning of it or the physical part of it, takes place between the panels in what's called the gutters, the empty space. So it's all meta text. It's all what you read into that. And again, we need to be careful not to read too readily and impose things on the text that aren't there. Um, but if Superman jumps on a, towards a villain, if he flies towards a villain with his fist clenched in panel one, and in panel two, the villain flies through a building, then in between, in the gutter, that's what the, uh, punch connected and it's the same way with the meaning of it so when we look at superman does at any point in the comics anybody compare him to moses no to samson yes by the way many times but that's a different um does anybody say this guy is a metaphor for jewish immigration and jewish existence and jewish values no but nonetheless it's there and it's once if you took it out panel one and panel two won't connect it has to be there for them to connect that meaning is very very clear in some instances so you approach these comics with the same exegetic uh, uh attitude as you would the midrash or in other texts as the midrash does to the bible and other texts um and in, in that sense there's this kind of parchment this kind of um uh uh, uh deep dive this talmudic deep dive into the sources if you will.
1: What are some examples of social justice themes in the Superman comics? During World War II, Superman became an American icon very
0: quickly and infallible as such. And after the war, he became this kind of, you know, if you think of American entertainment in the 50s, it was very sanitized, it was very patriarchal, it was very sensorial. So Superman became this kind of sanctified, Jesus like figure which really hasn't been since the at least mid 70s, if not earlier. But it's it's an image he still contends with. Um, he he really is was only this kind of squeaky clean father figure for a decade and a half or so of his long, long career. The interesting part in terms of social justice, and it's been there forever, and it certainly has made its resurgence in current times with the current zeitgeist of social justice. Um, But if you look at his creation from 1938 all the way to the beginning of the war, he was not this squeaky clean, big blue boy scout. He was this angry, temperamental, pugilistic New Deal liberal. He was called a reformist. He supported the New Deal. He supported um, uh, housing projects and welfare. And he supported British rearmament and intervention long before. Uh, he was taking on Hitler in the comics wh- at the time where about 93% of the American public by peer surveys were still staunchly against any form of intervention. Um, he builds, he raises the ghetto and builds new buildings for orphans. He takes on racketeering. He takes on um, uh, munitions magnets who are war profiteers and the corrupt uh, um, senators and lobbyists that are in their pockets. Uh, he takes on even though he throws criminals in jail, he then goes undercover and reforms a jail that abuses prisoners because he also believes in their human dignity. Uh, he the, the story after story after story. He saves during the depression. He saves small businesses. He um, volunteers to uh, to uh, generate income money for small businesses that are about to go bankrupt. He uh, in um in one story there are Eastern European immigrants who are used illegally as miners, uh, not being paid well, there are no safety um, precautions, and they keep getting hurt while the carousing mine owner just parties all the time. He ends up locking the um, mine owner in a mine, forcing him to dig his way out, at which point, of course, he has a change of heart. So there was always just kind of looking out for the little man. Superman was very clearly blue-collar, very clearly urban, uh, very clearly friend to the immigrant, friend to the poor, and very much a reforming new dealer there was no question what his social politics were
1: what virtue ethics do various superman films comics and tv series depict how does the possibility of thinking about superman in jewish and biblical perspective complement or challenge these virtue ethics
0: i mean that's a that's a question that i sort of explore throughout the entire book because those things change of course uh in the broadest stroke with you know without um disappointing anyone judeo-christian ethics are in a to a very large extent the basis of modern western thought and modern modern western values um that's not to say obviously that one is beholden to the other but in this evolutionary tree they are a big part of the 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 root system the at the end of the day, Superman is a symbol of brotherly love. It's that simple. And I refuse to acknowledge it as banal or trite. It's important. If it was banal or trite, we would remember it and we keep forgetting it. You know, golden rule. It's that simple, but it's that important. And that's what Superman, you know, Spider-Man years later, um, phrased it the best, but the message started with Superman with great power comes great responsibility. This is some guy from a small town who has a gift and he uses that gift for other people and he just tries to do the right thing and figure out what the right thing to do is. And that is something that to me makes him more relatable than, you know, Batman, a multi-billionaire who lives in a mansion and psychotically goes out at night to beat criminals, um, you know, uh, dressed up like a, a rodent superman is a guy who you know he hides his identity but he's just he's just a guy trying to do the right thing with what he was given and that to me is a powerful message in terms of the movies because you mentioned the movies and shows the virtue ethics that these depict are actually not consistent uh the superman of christopher reeve in the 70s and 80s is a very different character than the superman of brandon routh in 2006 superman returns and those two are very different from the superman of henry cavill in two, 2013 man of steel and then 2016 batman v superman 2017 justice league those are very different characters And um even without going in depth if you imagine yeah, a switch taking one character and flopping in another movie they would not re- react in the same way they would not interact in quite the same way um but there's this great moment in the christopher reeve movie where lois lane asks him why are you here and he says, Well, Miss Lane, I'm here to fight for truth, just in the American way. And she laughs, Ha, you'll end up finding every elected official in the country. And um Lois, I'm sure you don't mean that. She said, I don't believe it. And he looks her square in the eye and very earnestly and very simply says, I don't lie. And that to me is at the core of it. And and yes, I'm being very cheesy. I'm being very simplistic there's not a philosophical discussion right now but that's what the character at its core is about and that is what judeo-christian virtue ethics are at their core about and i hope that answers your
1: question satisfactorily thank you in what ways is the biblical moses present in superman's personality in what ways is the biblical jesus present in superman's psychology in what ways is the biblical Samson present in Superman's character? Ah,
0: a laden question. So let's start with Moses. The easiest example, and I am by by far not, the uh, by no means the first one to point to this. Superman's origin story is the origin story of Moses. To save Moses, uh, his baby Moses' life, his father and mother, Amram, and Yocheved put him in a small basket of bulrushes they put him in denial they sent him adrift um he's found by pharaoh's daughter uh Bisia. she renames him raises him as her own in adulthood he um he grows to be somebody with a passion for justice you know we know the story with the israelite slaves who fight we know the story with the slave driver who uh, whips the israelite slave we know the story with zipporah in the uh, watering hole if you don't those are the three stories um that the Bible tells that's the only thing we know about Moses from infanthood to uh saviorhood. And of course with the burning bush, he returns the great savior. Superman, similarly, to you know, to save baby Kala's life, they put him in a small vessel. They sent him adrift on the Milky Way to an unknown fate. He's found instead of the bull the denial, the amber waves are grain of a Texas um Kansas wheat field. wheat field. He's adopted um and raised by people not his own. He's renamed by his adoptive mother. And in adulthood, he uh, becomes a great savior. And what hasn't, what I note for the first time in my book is that their uh, teenage years, their chrysalis stage, as I refer to it, is also very similar. If you remember the Superman, the movie, if you remember that, uh, when he turns 18, he hears this kind of thing called to him the kryptonite, uh, the krypton um, crystal uh, calling to him. He goes on this walkabout across the North Pole and he creates the fortress of solitude whereupon he encounters the hologram, the recording of his father Jor-El. He appears as this bright apparition. He tells him, um, I am Jor-El, I am your father. Uh, he tells him where he comes from, that he is Kryptonian. And he um, bestows upon him this responsibility that he Clark Kent is at first very reluctant to accept, why me? And eventually he goes back into the world as a great savior. That is the same story of Moses who uh, at the age of 18 crosses the desert of Median, comes across the burning bush, where the bright apparition of the angel of the Lord appears to him saying, I'm the God of your father. Um, he bestows upon him this, he tells him where he's from, gives him bestows upon him this responsibility, which he likewise is reluctant to take on, but eventually returns into the world as a great savior. The difference being that Moses returns to his Birth people, where Clark uh, slash Superman returns to his adoptive people, but so it's not a one-to-one metaphor. And that's fine. That's not how metaphors work. But it's still the same origin story. It's the same development story, um, and they do share in the early days uh, a bit of a, a similar personality. In that, you know, all the heroes of the Hebrew Bible are deeply flawed. In comic book parlance, they're more Marvel than DC, and they're heroes with feet of clay. And in that sense, the early Superman was a bit temperamental. He was a bit hot-headed. And sometimes he regretted his uh, sort of hot temper. And Moses was too, and they shared that. And we, again, the three stories we know of Moses from being a baby to um, uh, fleeing Egypt are these uh, this kind of strong sense of justice. And that, of course, is echoed in Superman. There are more examples, but I want to move on to Samson, which, well, I want to move to Jesus first. And from a literary perspective, we talked about folklore and I mentioned um, morphology or um, uh, formalism. From a literary perspective, Jesus is a... Uh, sort of rehashing of Moses, right? They're very similar. There's a massacre of kids. There's a time in the desert. There's a return as a savior. There's a big sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of bright lights. There's a covenant. Uh, They're very, very uh, um, evocative. There are a lot of parallels between one another from a literary perspective. Um, And Superman definitely has become more uh, Jesus-y as time has gone by. And we... Really don't see it, interestingly enough. We do not see particular Christological, anything specifically Christological in the comics well into the 90s. Those themes really make their appearance on screen, beginning with 1978 Superman and then coming into sharper focus with 2001 Smallville miniseries, um, TV series, 2006 Superman Returns, and then the Henry Cavill movies, where there are all kinds of um, uh, Quasi-biblical quotations, passages, a lot of um, very blunt uh, moments of Superman assuming the pose of Jesus on the cross, the crucifix pose as he floats around, and there are all kinds of examples of that nature. That said, uh, while there are parallels and they are just as legitimate where this particular metaphor falls apart is that Superman is first and foremost an action hero. He punches his enemies. And that is a very problematic resolution to things from the Jesus perspective. Uh, Jesus, last time I checked, did not throw Pontius Pilate through the walls of Jerusalem. So that's sort of where things fall apart. The last and most uh, significant factually is Samson because that is the one that Superman's uh, co-creator Jerry Siegel discusses in some length in his unpublished memoir that he was strongly inspired by the legend of Samson. The cover of Superman number four shows Superman toppling pillars in a great hall as these kind of uh, criminals scurry about was a deliberate and conscious homage to Samson. And in the original comics, Superman is referred to as the modern Samson or possessing the might of a dozen Samsons. And if you remember from the Bible, Samson had super strength, of course, right? He topples the pillars, he smites the army of a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, um, et cetera, et cetera. He tears a lion in half. But he also had super speed. He catches 300 foxes in in one. uh, And in the Mishnah, there's a story where he leaps in a single bound a long distance. And for all of his superpowers, uh, Samson was an Israelite judge. Right? He appears in the Book of Judges. He fought in the name of truth and justice. And Superman's co-creator, Jerry Siegel, discusses all this and acknowledges all this as a direct influence.
1: Who was Jerry Siegel? Can you describe his biography, legacy, and the story of his life? Superman was created by two Jewish 17-year-olds
0: named Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Jerry Siegel was a first-generation American. The family was uh, Sigalowitz, They came from Lithuania. He was born in Glenville, a predominantly Jewish neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio at the time. And Joe Schuster of his same age was born actually in toronto which i believe is where you're based out of um fun fact metropolis originally was not based on new york that came later it was based on toronto um mm-hmm. his very young joe schuster again there's the depression people got a job when they were six he was a newsboy for the toronto daily star which is still around which was the inspiration for the daily planet so there you go at the age of 10 the, the family was um Shusterovich, and they came from um a dutch ukrainian background they have a whole fascinating history they moved to um canada then at the age of 10 to glenville siegel and schuster met in glenville high school at um the age of 14 and they became best friends at first sight and the very first day that they met, they sat down and they created the proto- the prototype for what would become Superman. Um, my favorite part of this story, and again, Superman was uh, uh, sort of an amalgam of a lot of influences, including their personal wish fulfillments, and very much a reaction formation to the rise of Nazism in America and in Europe. And Clark Kent was very much based on themselves. Siegel even modeled as Clark Kent for Schuster to draw. Uh, It took them four years to sell this uh, Michigan idea, and in June 1938, Superman debuted, and the rest is history.
1: How much Torah did Joe and
0: Jerry know? Where did they learn from? So that is a somewhat debated issue. The sources that I found seem to be conflicting, and I attribute this conflict simply to a generational interpretation of what being a conservative or practicing Jew means. They were not secular by today's terms. You know, what you and I call a secular Jew might might just mean you know, you, you eat a bagel, you use some Yiddish, maybe you have a, a general liberal outlook on the world, you're done. <laughs> but back then, you were much more practicing and much more engaged in the community, even mm-hmm. as a full-blown atheist. It didn't matter. It was just different, a different time. So I attribute the conflict to that. But um, some sources claim they claim they uh, both grew up conservative um i believe the truser grew up more there's um his grandfather was a rabbi or a cantor back in um, amsterdam the he grew up much, much conservative, but both grew up in a very Jewish neighborhood, similar to the Lower East Side in New York of the time. It was a Jewish, not quite as much of a ghetto, but it was a Jewish neighborhood. There was a synagogue every corner, deli every corner, bagel shop every corner. They grew up speaking Yiddish at home. Uh, Siegel's mother, Sarah, Soria, was uh, very active in Jewish affairs in the community. They both went to Hebrew school. They spoke Hebrew as well. Um, so again, they were much more practicing and much more um, uh, uh, conservative than we would recognize today. But to themselves, back then, they did not consider themselves particularly devout Jews. All that is to say that their level of Jewish erudition was more than nominal. They would have been familiar with the Talmud to some extent. They would have been familiar with the Bible. they definitely would have read the thing and they would most certainly have been aware of such evocative meaning as the word El in
1: Hebrew. Who did Joe and Jerry consider the ideal reader and imagined audience for Superman.
0: Ah, that's a good question, because uh, we tend to think of comic books as kiddie fair, and the fact is that they are factually not, nor have they almost ever been. Uh, obviously, it's a young readership, but the average age of superhero, the average reader of superhero comic books, is actually a teenager, not a young child. We think, oh, they read them at the age of six or five or whenever they, they uh, become literate and they age out of them by around 10 or 12 when they discover girls and sports. But the facts just don't bear that out. Um, originally, comics were sort of four-quadrant entertainment the way superhero movies are today. Um, they are geared towards the young. The merchandising certainly is uh, it targets the young. But almost everybody goes to see them. And comics were that of their day. Uh, the majority of American adults would read comics regularly. Uh, i don't remember the statistics offhand but they're in the book it's something like uh 60 percent of men above 50 90 percent of men 30 to 50 they're very very high numbers read comic books regularly and when world war ii broke out comic books essentially became regulation equipment they're in everybody's back uh duffel bag they're in everybody's back pocket um they outsold five to one every other magazine combined and uh in the Army PX, they became official regulation equipment, sent to the Midway Islands. Everybody was reading comics everywhere. Uh, again, there was just radio, a few movies here and there. There wasn't that much entertainment. This was cheap. This was accessible. This was something you could exchange with your friends. And right. adults were reading it. Teenagers were reading it. It wasn't until the 50s when they became infantilized and harshly censored uh, censored to the point where they became lobotomized for a good generation that they became squarely kiddie fair, but they've really grown out of it uh, throughout the 70s. Can you
1: compare and contrast the life stories and biographies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster? In what ways was the life experience that Joe Schuster and Joe Schuster's family, similar or different to that of Jerry Siegel and Jerry Siegel's family? in what ways did their, their biographies or psychobiographies or family histories intertwine? Or in what ways were they rather different?
0: They they discuss in, in quite a few interviews how in, they had very different personalities, but they discuss in, in quite a few opportunities how they were uh, basically the same person. They were both shy around women. They were both social uh, pariahs. They were both awkward. They were both not particularly good-looking, um, very talented, but not particularly bright academically. Uh, they were poor Jews, which, of course, uh, was its own cluster of identity back then. And they really based Clark Kent not more on one or the other, both, but on both of them. They are both bespectacled um, and hunched and all that kind of, you know, they really lived to that stereotype. They found common ground because they were very much cut from the same cloth Uh, to the point by the way that even though jerry was plump and taller and joe was shorter and very skinny people assumed that they were siblings they assumed they were brothers uh on a regular basis just because they had the same mien they had the same kind of uh, air and appearance personality wise Joe was, you know, the, it's like Penn and Teller. Joe was the mom sort of sidekick role. He was the nicer guy, he was the quieter guy, he was the sweeter guy, he was the less confident guy. Jerry, um, from everything I could, sort of from from the image I got and from reading about him and also reading his own writings, which to me uh, were more telling than any sort of uh, interview or um, interview about him, he was, he was full of anger. He really was this kind of fed up. He was fed up being bullied at school. He was fed up being a Jew who was uh, oppressed. He was fed up with being poor. He was just fed up. And he definitely was more uh, prickly and had more of an attitude, which both served him well in life, but also was his hindrance. It was very much a double-edged sword. Um, Schuster was the nicer guy. Is the guy everybody liked. Is the guy everybody got along with. Um but also, he he never really stood up for himself in any, in any of the opportunities that he could and should have. So that would be the main difference between those two.
1: Who is the character Jor-El in the original Superman comic? Can you explain the biblical nature of this name and personality? So Jerry Siegel came up with the name Jor-El, originally spelled
0: J-O-R hyphen L, just the letter L, not E-L as a word. Uh, in a different comic, and then he reused it in Superman, and that is Superman's father. The name started out as an anagram for his own name, Jerome Siegel, Jerry Siegel, so Jor-El. So it was a bit of a play, which is why when he came up with the kid's name, Kal-El, it was really more of a coincidence. But um, precognition or um, deliberate intent are not necessary for meaning to be there, right? Most great art and most great literary meaning comes from some sort of unconscious um, uh, place. And nonetheless, the name is highly vocative in Hebrew, and that's really the important point here. Jo'el is Superman's father, and this also lends itself to the Jesus interpretation of the character, which, again, is, is just as legitimate as any other interpretation. And Jesus gets his own full chapter in the book with all of that analysis, um, if you have jor sending Kal-El to Earth, then you have a man named God sending his son son named God down to Earth. And that's sort of a thread. Um, the els personality and how that plays in the Superman comic has really not been consistent. But if you recall Marlon Brando in the Superman movie, then really it's, it's basically God from you know, medieval and Renaissance art for all intents and purposes.
1: Are there any biblical or Judaic themes in other classic American comic books, such as X-Men? Is there anything Judaic about the personality of Batman? Are there any similar refugee themes to those manifest in Superman, in Spider-Man? The answer is yes to
0: all those examples. Um, every major superhero from the golden age and most of the ones from the silver age of comics, which would be the late fifties and into the sixties was created or co created by Jews, including publishers and editors, not just writers and artists. The two notable exceptions, as I mentioned are wonder woman and the original captain Marvel, who's now called Shazam. The um, Batman himself does not have, much of a Jewish personality, although it has been hypothesized that his uh, the violent origin, the the murder of his parents in front of him, gunned down in the streets of Gotham, has to do was inspired by Kristallnacht. That was written shortly after Kristallnacht. And again, you have to put yourself in the mindset of the time of safety, the illusion of safety and security shattered by violence in the street, against the backdrop of Gothic architecture of Europe, um, as well as Jerry Siegel's father died from a heart attack while his shop was being robbed by criminals. Um, No violence took place, but it was enough to kill him. So the context was violent. And Stego and Schuster were friends with Bob Kane and Bill Finger, born Robert Kahn and Milton Finger, who created Batman. So another theory is that that's how that came to be. And one thing there isn't much question about is that Bruce Wayne was either based on or eventually became the inspiration for chicken and egg Bob Kane, who dressed like him and behaved like him. He was sort of his waspy assimilationist figure. Um, There are all kinds of Jewish themes in the Batman comic and I give a whole uh, lecture about that. There's also an article in the forward if you Google it, the Jewish history of Batman. Uh, But here's the interesting thing that I'd like to point out is in the comics, canonically right now, it has been heavily hinted several times that Bruce Wayne's mother, um, her name was Martha Kane, was Jewish. Which means that halachically, Batman technically is Jewish. Quote, wow. unquote, for real. Uh, that's as far as Batman is concerned. Shh, don't tell anyone. Uh, the Spider-Man is probably the most Jewish character since Superman. Uh, we're talking about... Spider-Man was created in 1962 by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Uh, Stanley was born Stanley Martin Lieber on the Upper East Side, Jewish. And he is, of course, also a burlesque. He is, in reality, what Clark Kent just pretends to be. He's nebushy, bespectacled, shlemiel, shlemazel. He's sort of the ultimate victim, no matter how much of a hero he is. No good deed goes unpunished. The press constantly hounds him, excuses his enemies. He is this nebushy, uber-neurotic, yet brilliant students from Forest Hills, Queens, which was even now, but certainly back then a heavily Jewish neighborhood. Um, he is, uh, one thing I love pointing out is his powers of climbing tall buildings and swinging from tall buildings would really, his powers are really only effective in midtown Manhattan. And, and how is that for a Jewish metaphor? You know, um, he was hinted to be Jewish in all kinds of opportunities. He talks Yiddish nonstop. Now, everybody in New York talks Yiddish, but he really prattles in Yiddish in the comics nonstop. Um, uh, Kibitzer and oi and tukas and um, Gewalt and all these manashevets again and again and again and again. Mishagas. And um, there's dozens and dozens of examples. There are comics where he talks about it being tired from Shavuot. What kind of non-Jew is tired from Shavuot? Or he talks about Hanukkah. He wishes happy Hanukkah to Hakka in another comic. Um, and if you remember in 2018, in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, there's this montage where he talks about his background. And for he, there's a split second, literally less than a second, where you see his wedding and he steps on a glass in his wedding which again is a very odd thing for a non-Jew to do. So it's been hinted, everything short of explicit, but Spider-Man is the flagship flagship character of Marvel. He's also the most profitable, valuable superhero in the world by a margin. Um, he outsells Batman almost three to one. They're not going to out him as Jewish anytime soon. He needs to be an uh, everyman. And there are more and more examples throughout these different characters, Captain America and the X-Men, et cetera, et cetera.
1: There's a quote that I'd be curious to ask you about on page... 136. You write, while not his doing, placing Superman's childhood in a heartland rural community enhanced Siegel's message greatly, drawing on the Jeffersonian ideal of agrarian life as a cultivator of individualism, moral decency, and strength of character, the heretofore form metropolitan hero was rephrased as a farm boy who grew to be the great city's greatest resident, making Superman a parabolic promise to not only succeed in but tame the urban chaos at a time when American cities were changing rapidly by industrialization and immigration, each fueling each other. Many feared that America would become a nation of citizens without citizenry, strangers with no mutual accountability or allegiance to the nation and its ethos. By enlisting the values of the countryside, implying also the continued cultural dominance of homegrown and white Americans, Superman was a reassurance that immigrants posed no threat and were in fact the most loyal and grateful of citizens. Like baby Kal-El, they were only to be shown and they would champion the American way. It was likewise served as a rebuttal of the anti-Semitic stereotype of Jews as hopelessly cerebral and urbanized, lacking in old-fashioned rustic virility. Israel may have been the promised land, but America was the land of promise. Jews were safe and free to succeed, flocking to cities, particularly New York, that inspired in the former villagers and townsfolk both a sense of humble impotence and a fantasy of omnipotence when clark first arrives in metropolis he is the wandering jew finding his home in the city upon a hill the place where his talents are needed and welcome and where he can finally become super his journey from krypton to smallville to metropolis is thus also from the inherit the ancient kingdom to the diaspora to the new homeland can you expound upon this passage and insight
0: uh there's a lot to expound it's a long passage actually those are two combined passages the part that starts with um israel may have been the promised land but america was the land of promise is a a different section it's the next paragraph but Mm -hmm. it marks a new section of the book but thematically one leads into the other of course Um, put yourself in the mindset of the era we're talking about the early mid-1930s there's a very real question of what is an American? First of all, you have this rise of all kinds of alternative systems of government in Europe, fascism, Nazism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, There's an ongoing fight against the Bolsheviks, right, in Russia. And you have these waves and waves of immigration starting in the late 1800s, really until the Johnson Reed Act sort of capped it, um, and that's its own set of uh, whores. there is this question, especially among the middle Americans, the ones that have been here for generations at the time. Uh, and there's of course, a subtext of racism uh, because these are Germanic and maybe Irish and a few Italians and whites and white passing and Protestant and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the question of we get all these immigrants from all these countries that come from different cultures, maybe different traditions and system of government and belief systems, uh, different skin tones, different languages. What, how do we stay America? what makes an american it, this is not a nation that is defined by uh, specific borders it's not a nation that's defined by a specific ethnicity it's not a nation that's defined by a specific long uh standing history this is a nation of immigrants it's a nation of mutts what holds america together is the ethos what makes you in you know it's not italy for italians and um you know germany for the germans etc this america is for the people who buy into, and live the American dream. That makes him an American. That's it. So you have this really rapidly transforming image of the country, and immigration is just part of that equation. You have industrialization, urbanization, secularization, um, new philosophies. Uh, you, You have this Nietzsche and Freud and Einstein, and all of that goes into the mix, right? This all happens in only a few years from each other. It's a lot. And the the place of of man in general in in humanity sort of feels small and smaller and more insignificant, and Superman in many ways is this, this reaffirmation of these humanistic values. It's almost like a rebuttal to Nietzsche, and and we can go into that in a minute. But in the American context, Superman is a reaffirmation of what America is. Again, it's a it's a it's an immigrant metaphor. Immigrants will come here and become the most grateful and most beneficial. Americans that should not be afraid or rejected but rather accepted taken in and uh raised and taught <clears throat> the very so in the very first issue that superman appears in action comics number 1 from june 1938 the origin is one page it's minimal that origin is expanded upon in superman number 1 june 1939 that is the same month that the uss that the st louis the voyage of the dam happened so if you don't know a ship, the um, uh, a ship called the Saint Louis, came to Cuba. Then was sent to Florida, um, full of refugees from Europe uh, seeking asylum. And they were turned around and sent back to Europe. And they died in the camps. The same month, you have this origin story of Superman. The same exact month coming out. This, one was not a reaction to the other, obviously, but they were both um, one was a Superman origin was a reaction to the same cultural forces that led to this event. Um, you have a story about a refugee in a vessel shipped here who's not turned back, who is not sent back to the catastrophe, who is taken in and that is given a safe place. And as baby Superman is helpless, it's only for the kindness of Americans that he grows up to be Superman. And that's a very powerful message at the time. So, but that's the the promise externally. To Jews, Superman was also the promise that this was their place, that, um, that they will be valued, that they will be welcomed, that they could finally, in a place that doesn't limit what job they can have, or what social place, it almost doesn't, you know, what place, um, social place they can hold, where they can live and who they can interact with and what they can do, this is a place for them to finally spread the wings.
1: Mm. Can you tell us about the character Amalek? Amalek? Where does he show up in the Superman comics? Can you tell us about the character Lilith? Where, when, and how does she show up in the comics? Can you tell us about the character Supergirl and the Judaic aspects of her character in light of Jewish religious literature? Can you comment on these names and individuals
0: a malak is not a very significant character he shows up in in 1966 in superman 190 for the first time he's a space pirate he's a recurring villain and sort of start the 60s and 70s into the 80s shows up here and there um he harbors this deep hatred of all kryptonians because one had destroyed his world that's later revealed to be uh zod um And his, you know, Amalek, his name is just a slight variation of the biblical Amalek, which are the nomadic Mm -hmm. marauders, descendants of Esau, and the mortal enemies of, you know, his brother Jacob's descendants, the the Israelites. Um, Lilith, who in Talmudic and Kabbalistic and other writings is, of course, is the first succubus and the origin of the vampire uh, story. I wrote a whole thing for CNN about how the vampire lore got started and it really traces back to Lilith, although she has a proto origin a mention in Sumerian texts, including the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh. She is an enemy of Supergirl. There was a whole story written by Peter David, a Jewish writer in the nineties lasted 80 something issues, which is very, very long-term in uh, in the comic book world, which is pretty transient. Usually you have creative teams that come and go. where Supergirl effectively becomes deputized by God Almighty as an agent of Shekhinah, which is the feminine aspect of God, which is a really weird thing for a comic book to do, but and of course, very Judaic. She meets literal angels. She even meets what is hinted to be an avatar of God himself, a boy called Wally. Wally's supposed to be a play, a play on Yahweh, um, and one of her enemies is uh, Lilith. And that storyline... God is mentioned literally in every issue. It opens with a prayer to God. God is mentioned in every issue, and that's that. Um, Peter David, being uh, an intelligent and, and eruditious writer, really um, imbued that whole storyline with an awful lot of Jewish themes. That that's a college course just about that uh, can be made. The so you asked about uh, Amalak and Lilith and Supergirl, right? So that's mm-hmm. awesome. can you
1: tell us about the character? isaiah the inheritor where does he show up in the history of the superman comics likewise can you tell us what the character high father referred to on page 239 likewise can you tell us what the character metron referred to on page 239 as well who are these individuals what is judaic about them
0: the most significant artist or creator in the history of comics is jack kirby born jacob kurtzberg uh, in 1917 in the lower east side he is the co-creator of many characters including captain america iron man um the avengers the x-men um he created silver surfer uh etc cetera, etc cetera. and in the 70s he was the auteur creator of his magnum opus for DC Comics called The New Gods, uh, also known as The Fourth World Saga. And that is essentially a science fiction uh, Jewish fable. And he based the villainous characters, the evil space gods, on fascist and Nazi archetypes. The main bad guy who ended up becoming sort of the main villain of the DC Comics universe, Darkseid, is essentially a space Hitler. And Kirby based all the good guys, the uh, benevolent space gods on Jewish archetypes and celebrities and family members. And um, one example is the knowledge-seeking Metron, who uh, he was given, Leonard Nimoy, who of course is Jewish, he was given Leonard Nimoy's likeness and mannerisms. That's who he was based on visually. But his name and role are patently derived from the angel Metatron, which is a uh, name Metron for Metatron, um, alternately spelled Metatron in the Talmud, um, yes. who is described in Talmud and Kabbalah as the celestial scribe in the Guardians of Secrets. Um, metron is noted to be sitting while performing his heavenly duties the only being allowed to do so before god Uh, much the same as metron perennially sits on his space-faring mobius chair which allows him to travel through space and time to observe and record the universe Um, interesting to note metron's outfit his design is a pattern of interconnected spheres and lines which is one of kirby's sort of signature motifs, he used it in numerous uh, designs, it really resembles, evokes Kabbalah's Tree of Life, the, the cosmolo- cosmological diagram. Uh, the, the, even the richer character than that is High Father, who uh, is the prophet leader of the evocatively titled world New Genesis. Um, he's this white-bearded, robed sage, he carries a shepherd's crook called the wonderstaff, which is a conduit for the source, a higher power that speaks to him in flame, bestowing, quote-unquote, the written word. Uh, the source is described as eternal and beyond all knowledge and sweeping concept at our command, omnipotent, all wise, etc., cetera, etc., making it clearly God. And the source communicates with High Father uh, uh, through the wall, which is the last remnant of the old gods, these are the new gods, which is suggestive of the Western Wall in Jerusalem, right? Judaism's holiest site, the last remnant of the ancient temple, where priests communed with God. And before becoming high father, he was named Isaiah the Inheritor, spelled differently but still a homophone of the biblical prophet Isaiah, Yeshua in Hebrew, uh, whose name means God is salvation, and like uh, Moses, High Father sojourns into the desert wasteland of New Genesis in search of enlightenment, where he first encounters the source, which, of course, he encounters him as flame, where he gives him his destiny, bestows upon him his destiny and responsibility. This isn't subtext. It's not designed to be subtle. That was never Kirby's strong suit nor um, interest. He was always interested in being stentorious, and evocative uh it's sort of like uh uh, sitting on a subwoofer that's what his comics are supposed to feel like and they do
1: how does the character superman interact with the character batman in the comics series can you tell us about their relationship with one another what are the personality traits and character attributes of their characters and what if anything is judaic about the way that batman interacts with superman
0: i don't know that their relationship in of itself um bears any particularly jewish underpinnings their the context of their creation is very jewish they were both created not just in a but the same jewish milieu of young um eastern european first generation american jews uh in new york in the area Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, creator of Superman, Bob Kane, and Bill Finger, creator of Batman, were friends. Um, they knew each other. They would spend time with They hung out. They partied. Um, Joe Schuster would go dating with uh, uh, Bill Finger. They would tell uh, the girls that the, the girls were dating Superman and Batman. That was their whole thing. And Batman was created, uh, was commissioned in direct response to the success of Superman, and they came out from the same publisher. The publishers were Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibovitz, Yakov Lebovich, they were both also Jewish. So the whole thing, it was a Jewish industry, people from the ghettos who could not find a job, created an industry, they all knew each other. So in that sense, there's a very Jewish connection. In terms of the characters themselves in the comics, I don't see it as a particularly um, Jewish anything, but their relationship has really changed in its character over the years. They were always frenemies. They were always sort of at odds with each other in terms of their methods and worldview. But for a long time, they were they were sort of, they're called super friends. Uh, but the other title, which is, is more true, is World's Finest. They were, they're always yin-yang, oil and water, dark and light, and they always respected each other and were friendly but they're also somewhat at odds. And there are many comics, actually way, way too many comics in which they are pitted against each other. Um, at this point, I think it's sort of well past overdone and trite and lazy to just have those two fight. Um, but they have what, what you might call a complex relationship.
1: In what ways is the villain of the Superman series, Lex Luthor, an allusion to Martin Luther? Can you explain
0: there's no evidence that there's any connection but when they come up when they came up with the name luther uh in that era it would probably and to this day it's pronounced a lot of people pronounce it luther it would have inescapably evoked martin luther um who you know the german reformation leader who was a vehement anti-semite who repeatedly called for violence against Jews. He wrote treaties like On the Jews and Their Lies in the 1500s. Um, he inspired widespread riots and murders and expulsions. And Luther's um, teachings were revived in the 1930s as part of Nazi ideology. And they found a new audience among American Bund supporters and many Lutherans. The Lutheran movement had this revival uh, in America, both separate and as a result of, sort of the, the German nationalistic revival, and it went hand-in-hand hand with anti-Semitism and Nazism, and it renewed uh, Martin Luther's infamy among Jews. So it, it's not a stretch, again, in the context of the time, to postulate that it possibly Luther, a hateful uh, revolutionary priest, inspired Luther, a hateful, power-hungry scientist.
1: What were the similarities and differences between the golden age of the superman series the silver age of the superman series and the dark age of the superman series are the biblical themes and judaic themes different in these different series how do the plots differ do the themes and virtue ethics differ can you elaborate
0: you ask uh, wonderful, insightful, very uh, multi-layered questions. I'm going to try and do this one justice. Uh, okay, so comic book periods are generally divided into these historical eras called the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age. And after that, there's less of a consensus. There's the Dark Age, the Modern Age, etc. cetera. Um, the Golden Age is the 30s and 40s into the mid-50s sometimes. The Silver Age is late 50s and 60s. Broaden Age is 70s to mid-80s. And the Dark Age is 80s, uh, either to today or the 90s, preceded by the Modern Age. That's, again, um, argued over. And like any division of, his- of history, anywhere in any context, it's pedagogical, right? There's no, there's no moment in history that uh, things actually end and one thing leads to the other and bleeds into the other and any, no matter how revolutionary or innovative something is, uh, the momentum starts earlier. It's always that kind of... So similar with comic books, that said, the Superman of the Golden Age was less powerful, he was more street level, he was more angry, he was more political, and he was also more Jewish. Uh, as we go into the 50s, he becomes a bit more lever to beaver, father's knows best um, kind of character. And those Jewish themes are really taken out, but they make their their uh, return in the... Um, well, it's not that they're taken out. That's not true, because there's a lot of post-Holocaust exploration of the destruction of Krypton as a metaphor for the Holocaust and the loss of culture. And family, and loved ones. So there was always that. But I really picked up um, going into the late 50s. The Bronze Age is when Superman, Superman's co-creator, Jerry Siegel, left by this point. And uh, the new creative, the main creative force behind Superman, uh, uh, story-wise, not art-wise, is an, a writer called Elliot S. Magan, wonderful writer, Jewish, who was a student of Kabbalah and Martin Buber, who said in quite a few interviews that to him, Superman being Jewish is so self-evident it might as well be canon. And he imbued, he was the one, more than anybody, who imbued Superman's mythology deliberately and consciously with Jewish themes and stories. Um, I'll give you my favorite example. This is a long um, uh, saga that starts in the 70s in the comic, goes into a prose novel in 1981, goes back into the comics, and it culminates in Superman 400 in October 1984. And It's a story called Miracle Monday. Miracle Monday is a holiday celebrated in the far-flung future in honor of Superman, where we celebrate how how Superman saved humanity again and again, but also, and I quote, taught us how to live as a free people. In this holiday, the young member of the family—he's the one who needs to recite the story—says this night is different from all other nights. I don't know if you can see where I'm going with this. I assume you—you uh, you are, if you're Jewish, you definitely do. Um, and they, uh, the father of the family, who his name is Herzog, and he just so happens to also look exactly like Chaim Herzog, the president of Israel at the time in 1984 raises his glass and toasts, let all who are hungry come and eat. That is verbatim called dichfin. Verbatim. Uh, Then there's a little change. They symbolically put a portion of their food on a plate and set it aside uh, by an empty space uh, for Superman's eventual return. And of course, there's a Passover Seder, which works because the Haggadah, the Seder book, is essentially a comic book and the Seder is the story of Moses, who was a main uh, template for Superman. So it all fits together so you have these themes and they become they build more and more in the 1980s they rebooted superman there are far few jews involved they also had this kind of reversal of identity where or at least the appearance of one where uh the superman the identity became nothing more than a costume and clark kent was the real personality it didn't last that long but it really um uh flipped the script on it so to speak but they've sort of uh, rewind things since and in a few years ago a new writer he has since left called Brian Michael Bendis he's a you know he's world famous in comics he is a former orthodox yeshiva student also from cleveland um who got his start as an artist doing uh, characters in bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs he wrote superman and he deliberately brought a lot of those jewish themes back Uh, particularly to the whole Moses uh,
1: analogy. So it it comes and goes throughout the years. Mm. To the extent of your knowledge, how, if at all, were Superman comic books read and received in mandatory Palestine, which might have corresponded with the golden age of the comic books? To what degree were Superman comics during the silver age of the comic book series read in early israel is there evidence of jewish immigrants and jewish communities in israel reading superman before 48 after 48 were they ever translated into hebrew were they read in english um would they have been read in other languages is there any Evidence of this?
0: The the short answer is that there were no comics, no American comics in Mandatory Palestine during the British occupation of Israel of the era, nineteen seventeen, from the end of World War One, till nineteen forty-eight, um, Israel independence. So comics were really a an American invention, an American art form, and they weren't really exported. Again, there are comic strips and there are collections of comic strips that you could argue were comic books, but comic books, as we define them really were purely American, they were exported into Europe with the American occupation during World War II. And American GIs would give them to British soldiers who would bring them home. And we have all these uh, amazing pictures of children uh, reading American Superman comics um, while hiding in the British underground from the blitz going on above head in London. Amazing uh, things. And I have a photo of that in the book. The... But American comics really were not uh, in the era. I'm sure somebody brought something, but it was it was not uh, available. What was very popular were two things in Israel. And this was well into the 50s. Jules Verne. Jules Verne was hugely popular in, in Israel. Um, and the other one was Tarzan. Tarzan, before Superman, was the big character, was the big adventure character. He showed up in um, a pulp magazine called All Story for the first time in October 1912. So he's been around for a while and he was one of the inspirations for Superman. Tarzan was hugely popular in Israel and I suspect it had something with the Zionist ethos of these, you know, educated, suited Europeans coming to this rugged frontier land and having to become farmer scholars, uh, warrior uh, academics. And here was this kind of... um, european right he's he's lord greystock from from england this european um white guy who tames the african veldt and jungle i suspect there was something there with that kind of machismo but nonetheless tarzan became hugely popular in israel uh all the books and the stories were translated i have no idea if With rights or without rights, that was just not a factor back in the day. I suspect nobody paid for anything. But here's the interesting thing, and it's actually a story I'm I'm working on. Don't tell anybody. That um, well into the early 60s, there were locally written and published Tarzan books and stories in Israel. And they were really out there. Tarzan versus Dracula. Tarzan versus the aliens. Tarzan versus Atlantis. All kinds of crazy stories written in Israel for the Israeli audience featuring Tarzan. Nobody paid rights for these, I'm I'm assuming, um, because he was so popular. And it really, with the onset of television, uh, more than anything that America, you know, George Reeves and that kind of stuff, and and then Adam West, that superhero awareness kind of found its way into Israel, even when I was growing up in the 80s. you wouldn't find comic books everywhere. That was something that was special imported by a toy store that knew, or an old bookstore, which is where I found them, or, or something like that. Nobody brought them wholesale in an in organized fashion. In 1986, DC Comics rebooted their whole canon, used the opportunity to expand their line into different countries, go international, and they had their comics translated. And a few of them were translated into Hebrew. Um, and because Hebrew is read from right to left, they had to flip the pages, which drove me crazy because not only does the composition of the page change, but Superman's S was always in reverse, which drove me nuts as a kid. But there's something very interesting about reading comic books in the language of the Ten Commandments. It's wow. it's, it's, its own experience. In what ways
1: does Superman embody Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of the Ubermensch? Which characters can best be seen to fit the Ubermensch archetype? I I bring this question up um after my question about you know Israel and pre-state Palestine because these concepts played a very big role in early Zionist thinking and literature. I'd be curious how do they show up in Superman um. Can you comment on?
0: I mean, the, the role that, um Right. So the the role that they played in in pre nation and nation Israel is is its own sort of uh, discussion. Uh, the the short. So well, let's start from the beginning. Um, there's no evidence to support that Superman was directly inspired in any way by um, Nietzsche's Ubermensch. Uh, Siegel and Schuster discuss in, in Siegel's Unpublished Memoir and in different interviews, etc., in quite quite a lot of detail and candor. There are different influences, and they never mention Nietzsche or the Ubermensch in um, any way. And for two Jews who created a personal avatar, the last thing they would have meant for him to be is some sort of, um, is to personify, not you know, fascist ideology. That said, um, The very name Superman would have inexorably carried that connotation at the time. Whether Siegel and Schuster meant to or not, those two ideas are intertwined. They're interlinked. The English term Superman, if you don't know, first appeared in 1903, long before the comic, right? Um, In George Bernard Shaw's play Man and Superman, Uh, Superman was his translation of the Übermensch, which was a German term popularized but not coined by Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, in his 1883 book, Thus Spake Zarathusra, a book for all and none. And this is a point worth making, is that Nietzsche's Übermensch and the Nazi Übermensch, even though they become synonymous in the public imagination, are not the same concept. So when we're asking about the Übermensch and Superman, we're asking about three different concepts and not two. Uh, It's a triangle, and, and this is an important thing to point out. Nietzsche's Übermensch refers to the transcendent man, man, someone who's the one who surpassed humanity by rejecting the illusionary morality dictated by a fictional God, you know, famously, God is dead, and thus free and empowered to create his own values, limited only by his will. and in this sense, Superman does correspond to Uberman, you know, he certainly symbolizes power and superiority, and he's sort of a man god in, in place of Nietzsche's dead god, who enforces his own justice uh under an no authority to save his own, right? His own personal moral compass. And it and it's easy to label him a fascist because a superman is by definition an above man, and he imposes his will through violence, however well-intentioned it may be, which is a hallmark of fascism. But that's really a superficial reading, uh, as I see it. Um, you know, N- N- Nietzsche's you know <sighs> Nietzsche's Ubermensch is somebody who ascends to an entirely subjective morality, dictated only by his own ambition and potency, the, their their will to power. Um, you know, the embodiment of the, the Ubermensch, sort of unshackled from the delusional values, free to pursue his desires and fulfill his true potential. Uh, and, of course, Nietzsche called the um, these fake values uh, uh, slave morality and attributes them to the Bible, to Judaism, as well as to Christianity. So he, Nietzsche, contrary to common misconception, was not an anti-Semite, even though he held religion itself in the greatest of content. Um, it, his philosophy is undoubtedly harsh, but it's not political. The Ubermensch is cold-blooded, but he's not a fascist. His only purpose is himself. Um if this, if the Ubermensch does subjugate anybody else, it's for personal ambition, not national or racial ethos. Uh, to Nietzsche, any authoritar- authoritarianism, whether nationalist, racist, or religious, subsume individual will. All ideology is a craven escape of the you know the the, the austerity of truth, the um, a distraction from the real necessities of life. That said, the Übermensch became a central tenet of Nazi ideology, in part encouraged by Nietzsche's anti-Semitic sister, Elizabeth. Uh, Nietzsche was dead by then. And Hitler turned the Übermensch into a powerful propaganda figure, a symbol of the Aryan master race. So Nietzsche's morally transcendent man, which I also want to point out is a process of becoming, a constant process of becoming and overcoming. It's not a finite state of being. Uh, Nietzsche's Übermensch was reduced to the state-sponsored specimen of eugenics, his moral nihilism replaced it with National Socialism. Nietzsche's rousing call to overcome humanity's limitations, whether you agree with it or not, turned into a pretext to subjugate it. So again, you compare Superman and Nietzsche, um, it really depends uh, you know, which version of the Ubermensch. But uh, Superman in the short answer is the rebuttal to the Ubermensch. Ubermensch is might makes right, the will to power. Superman is right makes might. Um, for Duberman, the there's no law, no higher authority than himself. Whereas Superman, in both of his identities, holds himself accountable more or less to the same moral values and laws as everybody else. Um, you know, Clark Kent is is in service of other people. Superman is an abnegation of self, a life spent in service of others in the name of higher ideals that are, in Nietzsche's view, more nothing more than fantasy. Superman is like a biblical prophet, a champion of the very slave morality. Nietzsche railed against these. Superman is Moses and Jesus. Um, Nietzsche would was contemptuous of these kind of concepts. So um, you could say that Superman and the Ubermensch are a reaction to the same dehumanizing forces of the late 19th century and early 20th century, but they are opposing conclusions. One, a reaffirmation of man's place in humanism, and humanism in one sort of this nihilistic uh wiping of the slate that was that was a very long answer to your question but i hope it answered it
1: thank you it was a very generous answer thank you for so much detail and so much eloquence as we bring our dialogue today to a close can you tell us about where your attention has gone since the completion of this book
0: i have been very lucky with the success of the book Uh, It's been well received, it's been sold well, it's been picked up by Barnes and Noble and um, Target and the Walmart website, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that has opened many doors to me. I've been interviewed for a couple of documentaries at this point, the first one coming out in the spring. I write about pop culture from the Jewish perspective for The Forward. You can find me on there. I write about pop culture in general for CNN and IGN. I have a few more things in the works, including uh, my next book, which I will stay mum about at the moment, uh, but stay tuned. And um, my interest in pop culture from a Jewish perspective and recognizing the significant Jewish contribution to American pop culture, which is really the, the tip of the iceberg has been, has gone recognized as far as I'm concerned, remains, but my general approach to uh, studying pop culture and its history with a serious attitude, uh, which is sort of a, a still in its in its uh, early stages, that really has has taken on a life uh, of itself. It's it's really become sort of a a, a niche that I filled, and I'm very very grateful
1: for that. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'd like to convey my utmost appreciation to Roy for the most eloquent and erudite of interviews and an absolutely remarkable piece of scholarship. I would like to sign off by reminding you that I am Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network. I've been in dialogue with Roy Schwartz regarding his new book, Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero, published in Jefferson North Carolina by McFarland and Company, 2021. This book won the Diagram Prize for 2021. Roy writes about pop culture for CNN.com, IGN, and The Forward, among other publications. He is a historian and critic of pop culture. Roy, congratulations on a magnificent and outstanding piece of scholarship.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me.
1: Thank you.